Well, hello everyone and welcome back to the Aviation Avenue podcast. Folks, I'm happy to be back with you. Um, folks, I just wanted to hop on and wish everybody a very happy new year. Uh, we are almost closer to the end of 2022. Um, it has certainly been a nice year for me and uh, this podcast in general. Uh, I'll talk about that now. So, everybody, it was a nice year for us. Uh, 15 countries this uh, was streamed in, so on my Spotify wrapped. And then uh, 1.1k minutes, so 1,000 plus minutes. It was a really cool um, year for it. And uh, I just wanted to extend my thank yous to everybody who listened and uh, supported uh, this podcast. So, everybody, uh, yeah, so... We are going to be looking back at our F5 Freedom Fighter episode with Ron Gibb uh, as our uh, um, little um, New Year's Eve, New Year's um, episode. And uh, this is our final episode of 2022. I can't wait to see what 2023 has in store for this podcast. All right, everybody. We will see you guys. uh, We will talk to you on the back end. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Good morning. I'm Ron Gibb. Uh, I'm a 45-year retired employee for Northrop. Uh, I started working on the F-5 in 1966, and this is one of the first aircraft I worked on. Uh, The F-5 was was generated by President Kennedy in 1963. At that time, the United States was giving their allies all these old aircraft from World War II and the Korean War, and it was costing them a lot to maintain them. And he said, well, it's time we give them a modern aircraft that's small and lightweight and easy to operate and easy to, uh, to maintain and, and affordable. And so he selected the F-5 uh, under a program in uh, 1963 called the Military Assistance Program. And basically what they did was uh, they bought this aircraft uh, from Northrop and they put it in most of the countries surrounding the Iron Curtain. It went to Korea, it went to uh, uh, Taiwan, uh, Thailand, and Vietnam, and Iran, and Turkey, and Greece. And, uh, and Norway was scheduled to get this, and Norway decided that uh, they really could afford to buy it themselves, so they paid for the aircraft. They were one of the first countries to pay for it. And so this aircraft uh, was the 30th uh, Norwegian F-5A that was built. And it differed from the rest of the F-5As that were under the military assistance program, and that the designation instead of an F-5A was an F-5A parentheses G. And this was going to be an international fighter that was paid for by the countries. And they basically had four changes on this aircraft that were different than the basic F-5. One was they put a heated windshield on uh, so that it would stay defrosted in ice conditions. They put a heated inlet on the inlet because they needed that to keep the engine from from, uh, stalling out. And they put a tail hook on, so under the icy runways, if they ran off the end of the runway, they could catch a cable and protect, save the aircraft. And then they put uh, what they call was ATO, was assisted takeoff. It was big jet uh, bottles that fired uh, and would allow the aircraft to take off uh, under a very short field condition uh, with maximum uh, payload. Now, this aircraft is basically 8,300 pounds dry. Uh, it carries 4,000 pounds of fuel, and with the uh, pilot and with armament uh, and fuel and uh, hydraulics, it's 13,000 pounds uh, at a normal takeoff weight. Uh, 
but it can carry 6,400 pounds of stores. It can carry uh, 6,000 pounds on the centerline pylon. It can carry 1,000 uh, on the inboard uh, pylon and 750 pounds on the outboard pylon. There's two pylons that are outside of the uh, uh, gear door. And then this tip tank uh, is really a 50-gallon tank. Uh, you can carry either the 50-gallon tank, which is 450 pounds, or you can carry a launcher with a Sidewinder missile. And because this gave them quite a bit extra range, they, most of the countries flew with the tanks uh, and they, for their normal operation, and they saved the missiles and the launchers for if they went to war. Uh, but that assisted takeoff allowed them to operate in fields and meeting their NATO commitment because Norway had to go anywhere in Europe to help uh, protect uh, the countries there uh, if there was an invasion by Russia. So when you look at the uh, 6,400 pounds of external stores and you add that to the uh, takeoff weight of 13,000 pounds plus, uh, you basically had a maximum weight of 20,000 pounds. So you had an 8,000 pound airplane that weighed 20,000 pounds at max takeoff. When uh, when I hired into the F-5 program, it was a very small program. Northrop was about 3,000 people uh, in uh, uh, 1966. And uh, I hired into the mechanical design group that was headed by Charles Strayer. And in the mechanical design group, you had 30 engineers. And basically, those 30 engineers were broken up into the armament group, where there was uh, four or five, uh, the cockpit group, where there were four or five, uh, the hydraulics group that were about five or six, uh, the landing gear, uh, and uh, the flight controls. So those 30 people did the bulk of the design on the major mechanical hardware. And I worked in the cockpit uh, uh, group. I worked. Uh, I did some work on the armament section, and I worked on the design of the ejection seat. And uh, we did a major upgrade of this seat uh, during the 60s. Uh, which is still flying today in the FIs and in the T-38. Uh, this, this seat is uh, uh, got a, a zero, zero, it does not have a zero, zero capability. It has a zero altitude, 120 knot cap capability. So you could uh, be running off the end of the runway and eject and eject safely. It, the rocket, there's a catapult that separates the seat from the rail and uh, then there's a rocket that drives the seat uh, up about 200 feet in the air. And then there's also a pyrotechnic that kicks the man out of the seat, automatically pulls the ripcord. So if the pilot is unconscious after he ejects, there's a total automatic system that will recover the pilot uh, and uh, safely bring him down in the parachute to the ground. So uh, the, the armament, the main armament was two 20 millimeter cannons. Uh, it's an M39 uh, gun that was made during World War II by uh, Pontiac uh, that was on a lot of the aircraft in World War II. Uh, the 20 millimeter uh, uh, casing for the ammo carries 480 rounds, so there's 960 rounds. It fires at 2,000 rounds per sec per minute, and so you basically have 11 seconds of firing uh, with each gun. So you can fire one. Uh, or the other, or both, so. And uh, most dogfights, you know, you would maybe have three shots or three seconds each, and that's it, <laughs> so. Uh, the 
the F-5, he also had an RF-5A version that Norway had, and basically, and I worked on the design of that, we took this uh, sheet metal nose off and we put a magnesium casting on it, and it had five cameras. It had a Ford oblique camera, uh, it had uh, a TriMet array, and then it also had, uh, the cameras could go to different positions, uh, but they were 70 millimeter cameras and they had three different lenses. So you could cover 180 degree coverage uh, and afford oblique, or you could cover or steer with split verticals. And uh, Norway used that uh, in uh, uh, their operation. And I had the opportunity to go to Norway in 1970. Uh, they were in a NATO competition in uh, Denmark. And I spent a week in Denmark. And then I went to uh, uh, Norway and saw their operation at Riggi and at Boda airfields. Riggi is just outside of Oslo. Uh, there's a couple of stories about Norway uh, when I was there. Uh, one of the pilots landed in a snowstorm and he had 350 gallon tanks on and the uh, the pilot called to him and they said well I can just barely see you through the snow but he says you haven't cleared the runway so you need to clear the runway and he says why well, I'm, I'm almost in mill power and he said the aircraft is just barely moving he says this, the, must, the snow must be so thick, so, so thick that it's holding up the aircraft. And uh, so the, the guy in the control tower finally got the binoculars on him, and he said, well, he said, the problem is you didn't put any gear down. You landed on three tanks. <laughs> so they went out, and uh, they jacked up the aircraft, and they brought in the hangar, and they did an inspection, and the paint wasn't even scraped off the, the tanks, and they weren't even dead. There was enough ice and snow that he landed on, on a soft cushion. So, so they had a plaque up on the wall to commemorate his landing with the gear up. And, and then there was another uh, plaque where there was a big limb uh, attached to a, pli uh, to a, uh, a frame. And uh, one of the pilots came back. He was in a, a firing uh, mission and he fired the cannon and it, it hit out of a tree and blew some limbs off and the limbs flew up in the air as he flew through it and one of the limbs went into the intake and stuck and so when he got back they took the uh, the tree limb out of the intake and uh, uh, put it up on the, on the walls a memento uh, so and then there was another story there about uh, one of the pilots was doing a ground strafing run in northern Norway in the winter time and there were troops on each side, and the idea was to go down and simulate a strafing of the, of the troops. And after he made the pass, he had a centerline tank on, and after he made the pass, there was a furrow in the snow where he was so low, he left a, a streak in the snow with the centerline tank. So, so the aircraft is very durable, and it, it, the structure of this is very efficient, and uh, there have been very little problems with the aircraft. Uh, you know, the T-38 is now 50 years old, uh, the T-38 is the predecessor of this aircraft. Uh, there's over 700 still flying. Uh, the aircraft was designed for 4,000 hours, and the top T-38 has 20,000 hours on it. And the average T-38 at 50 years has uh, got 16,000 hours. So, so it's uh, and they replaced the cockpit longerons. They replaced horizontals. Uh, the horizontal is another example of the efficiency of this structure. The uh, horizontal is an example of the lightweight concept, uh, lightweight structure that Northrop developed. It basically is honeycomb with just a thin skin on it, 
and there's an upper and lower skin and then there's a rod that goes into the control actuator but the the horizontal weighs 40 pounds 43 pounds and uh, uh, the, the technique of getting this honeycomb to bond to the skin was what uh, was developed by Northrop and uh, basically the life of the horizontal is like 2500 hours so but, uh, it helped it helped contribute uh, uh, very little weight to the aft end of the aircraft. Air, aircraft are usually always tail heavy because of the engines. And this allowed the structure to be lightweight here. So, uh, The J85-13 engine, which weighs about 600 pounds, uh, has a capability where they can bleed off uh, part of the uh, compressor air uh, to eliminate the uh, stalls. And so these two exits are the bleeder for, that, uh, for the third, fourth, and fifth stage of the engine. And then this axis here is uh, if there was a fire. And, and one thing about the, the J-85 engine, there's been very few fires ever in the whole history of the aircraft. But you could, you could open up this door and stick in a fire extinguisher uh, on the ground if there was a ground fire, so, if there was a fuel leak or something. So. And then this is an indicator. This is a hydraulic reservoir uh, uh, on each side. There's a separate one for each engine. Uh, the aircraft has two systems. It has two engines, it has two sets of controls. Uh, everything is duplicated in the aircraft and it make it redundant. It's a very reliable cables and actuators. And uh, so that's what's made the aircraft safe and it's what's made it uh, durable. Uh, I remember Welco Gassage said that uh, when they sold the T-38, uh, the average uh, accident rate of pilots uh, was like 23 major accidents per 100,000 hours of flight. And and he guaranteed with the T-38 design, which then became the F-5, that there would be 12, uh, only 12 accidents per 100,000 uh, flight hours. And on the life of the T-38 right now, after about 13 million flight hours in 50 years, the T-38 is averaging one and a half uh, accidents per 100,000 flight hours. So. It's way, way under what the current uh, competition was. From the current competition, the T-38 was a uh, F-100D, and uh, you don't see that on this aircraft because there's only one canopy. But the head of the Air Force made Welco Gassage go out, and he was about six-two and weighed about 220 pounds and uh, 230, and he made him put on a parachute and go try to climb in the back cockpit. Of the, of the F-100D and it had a single canopy uh, so that the, the back of a portion, the canopy was at a low angle and he couldn't even get in the aircraft. And so he came back and he dictated that there would be two canopies uh, and they made him wait for 45 minutes before they hooked up hydraulics. And so he said, not only will there be two canopies, the canopy will be mechanically operated and uh, I'll show you that, uh, that mechanism over here. So anyway, in order to keep it simple and not having any, requiring any mechanical design, there's, an a, there's a handle in here that when you open this up, it comes out and you can twist that and you can unlock and open the canopy and close it. And then if you have to climb in, uh, there's a ladder here and a, and a handle here. You can, this ladder comes out and comes down and you can open up and step on it. You can climb in the aircraft without having to have a... Uh, another ladder system. So, so there was a lot of self-sufficiency built into the design, 
that was a result of lessons learned from other aircraft. So. One of the feedbacks that we got back from Norway after the off started operating the aircraft was the heated element in the, in the windshield uh, provided another uh, surface. So there was an outside surface uh, and there were two inside surfaces and uh, it turned out and the coating on the outside surface uh, was the heating element. And uh, during the winter time, uh, what happened was when they flew the aircraft, the wind over the airspeed, the air over the windshield uh, acted uh, as a charge couple and, and the windshield became a, a capacitor and with a real large charge. And one of the pilots, the normal thing, you, you raise the canopy, you unbuckle the seat, you grab hold of the rail on the top to get out. He grabbed hold of it and all four fingers, the gloves burned off from the discharge and electrical discharge. So they, they said they don't think they're going to use the windshield anymore. So they deactivated the windshield. But it was a, it was a really a safe, safety hazard. One of the guy got knocked on his keister so, uh, just from the charge. So. But you know, you, you, you do a design thinking you're going to help one thing and it creates another you wouldn't even thinking about. So. This is called a pedostatic airspeed indicator. It measures total pressure in the front and then there's a port on the back uh, which is static pressure. So it gives you a static pressure and the difference between the static and the, and the total pressure is computed to give you your airspeed. And uh, this is heated so that uh, uh, if you're in an icy condition, uh, you can turn the heat on and, uh, and it will prevent this from, from frosting up or freezing up so you wouldn't have any airspeeds. Under some of the flight test aircraft, they had real long booms that also had a, a orientation uh, wings on it so you knew what your roll and pitch were. So. But this was the production, and this is pretty standard on all the T-38s so. Relative to the cannon, the, the barrel sticks out to this point here, and right here is what's called a gun gas deflector. And what it does is you, when, you, when you fire the gun, there's a lot of discharge from the propellants that come out the barrel. And uh, uh, they had problems with it turning and going down the side into the uh, inlets and, and flaming out the engines. And so they build a, a deflector that comes up. It's hydraulically operated. It comes up in 40 milliseconds when you fire the gun. And there's two holes in it. Uh, so the, the projectile goes through, but the, the, the gas as it expands coming out is deflected over the windshield. And in Vietnam, what was happening is they came out with some new high HEI explosives on the 20 millimeter cannon that could uh, go through an armored vehicle. And they had such a high uh, uh, molten metal content that came out from the gas uh, that they were actually uh, putting holes in the, in the windshield uh, and under the ground fire. So there's different versions of this inlet, but the inlet basically is positioned out so that it catches uh, clean air without the boundary layer. The boundary layer that goes along the surface is basically at zero speed at the surface and as you go out it, it goes up to your airspeed. And uh, sometimes it's an inch or two inches thick. And so the inlet was positioned so that you always had the maximum flow through the inlet that you could get. And this is a heated inlet uh, for Norway but the, the basic F5 has holes in here and there's bleed holes that actually suck 
the boundary layer that's on this surface into the air conditioning package uh, so you get maximum uh, dynamic flow of, to the inlet. So this inlet runs at uh, 44 pounds per second for the J85-13 uh, engine and uh, on each side. And uh, so you've got a total of uh, you know, 90 pounds a second of air at uh, max speed, at max engine RPM. So. The wing basically weighs uh, 1,100 pounds and uh, uh, that includes the gear and uh, it has a, a flap on the inboard side and the aileron on the outboard side and, uh, and the leading edge, leading edge flap. So you have a leading edge flap uh, which is on the F5 that comes down manually to help increase the lift and then trailing edge flap. So that gives you a, an increased camber and the airfoil. And the T38 had no leading edge flap and it had no Lex. What the Lex did uh, was this extension has a huge uh, improvement in the lift uh, characteristics at stall because normally the, the, the wing wants to stall out near the root of the, of the ring and this gives you a, a much added lift. And so there's different versions of this in different sizes, but this is basically the F5. Okay, the F5E is much bigger and when we did the F20 it was even bigger yet. So. Every time we do a new wing, we make uh, the Lex bigger. The speed brake is controlled by two hydraulic actuators that and you can lower it to a position that actually slows down the aircraft without changing the pitch. It's positioned on the wing near the 25% uh, cord, which is the center uh, stability point of the wing. And uh, so when you lower the, uh, uh, the speed brake, it basically slows down the airplane but doesn't cause it to pitch up or pitch down. There's a little, depending on whether you have stores, there's, there's certain store configurations that will change it, but uh, basically it's centered pretty good. The, uh, the aircraft was fueled with a single point fuel developed by Parker Anafin, where you have the hose from the fuel truck and you hook it up and turn it a quarter turn and it will it'll, uh, feed and pressurize all the, the three fuel tanks. There's a forward, center, and aft fuel tank uh, however, even though you have a pressure fitting on the bottom, you do have uh, uh, caps up here. You can, they, if you had no fuel truck, you could put five-gallon cans up there. It'd take you a long time to fuel it. But, uh, or you could hook up a hose from the fuel truck and, and fuel the tanks from the top. So. so that was a backup system. So if this system didn't work, you could always fuel it uh, manually. So. Well, the countries that got the F-5 had to uh, uh, meet the MiG threat. And they had the MiG-15, the MiG-17, the MiG-19, and the MiG-21. When the MiG-21 came out, uh, the Russians built 11,000 of them. And they put them in all the countries that bordered the Iron Curtain. And so uh, uh, the countries, especially Korea and Taiwan uh, and Turkey, uh, they said, gee, you know, this thing's really a little underpowered. If we could uh, have just a little more power, we could be competitive with that aircraft under certain conditions. And so the F this is a 4,000-pound thrust engine. So they, uh, the GE increased the thrust to 5,000 pounds. Uh, they paid for a demonstration vehicle in 1969, and we flew uh, a two-place uh, 6008 uh, F5B with the engines in it. And then there was a competition for an international fighter 
between Lockheed and uh, General Dynamics or, and uh, Northrop, and uh, and the F5E won that competition. Uh, but that 10,000 pounds of thrust compared with 8,000 pounds, uh, you know, that's a 20% increase. And uh, and it, it increased the fuselage size so that instead of 4,000 pounds of fuel, there's 4,400 pounds to have a little more range. Uh, the wing could carry 10,000 pounds of stores instead of 6,200 pounds. So, I mean, there was, a, there was a big improvement just with that one engine change. And the engine changed from 16 inches in diameter to 18 inches. So. And the weight, the weight went up from 600 pounds to 700 pounds. So it was still uh, uh, eight to seven and a half to one thrust to weight ratio. So with a, a 700 pound thrust engine, you were getting 5,000 pounds of thrust. So you were a little more than seven to one weight to thrust, thrust to weight ratio. Welko Gassi said that when, they, when the team were designing the T-38, uh, most engines at that time, the F-100 engine was a 4 to 1 thrust to weight ratio. With the GE J85-5 engine, with a 7 to 1 thrust to weight ratio, he had what he called a 5 to 1 rule, and that instead of a 20,000 pound uh, structure in the F-100, he reduced the T-38 structure to a little under 5,000 pounds, uh, because Everything goes up with that uh, with the engine weight. So, if you can reduce the engine weight and the, and increase the thrust in that ratio, then you can reduce the the uh, weight of the aircraft. So the T thirty eight is like a seven thousand pound empty airplane and twelve thousand pound full. So. Uh, another it was another case where Saudi said, uh, you know, gee, if we just had some more thrust. You know, it would be nice, and Northrop was building the uh, aft end of the F-18 and was very familiar with the 404 engine. And so even though uh, Walt Fellers was a strong adamant of only two engines, only ever two engines, uh, over his resistance, uh, Northrop did a prototype of the single engine, which we called the F-5G. And it was an engine-only change, but basically we were replacing two 10,000, two engines with 10,000 pounds of thrust with one that had 18,000 pounds in the same airframe. And so, I mean, you now had a thrust-to-weight ratio of more than one, uh, and you could go vertical. So, uh, and so we developed that, uh, and, and the other thing that happened was when Jimmy Carter came into office, he said, in his peace movement, he said, we're not going to be the supplier of arms to the world, he says. The Army and the Air Force are not going to sell armament to any other country. If you, if you industry want to sell aircraft, you've got to do it yourself. So Northrop made an investment in the F-5G, thinking that, hey, we're in the foreign uh, aircraft sales. I mean, we have aircraft from 30 countries. Uh, we need to do it ourselves. So we developed the F-5G, and, uh, and it turned out to be very good. And then we had a sale to Taiwan. And Reagan came in and said, oh, I don't want to offend the PRC, so I'm not going to let you sell it to Taiwan. And then, uh, and then politically, uh, uh, the Air Force said, well, we'll evaluate where the F-20 should go. Well, the Air Force realized if they could sell more F-16s, uh, then it lowered their price to the aircraft. And so you had the, the fox in the hen house uh, making decisions as to who was going to get the hens. <laughs> 
and uh, and so the Air, the Air Force just resisted uh, any effort to, to market the F-20. And uh, finally, they got to a point where the F-16 was was replacing the, the F-5 in all these countries, and we had one competition between the F-20 and a and an F-16N uh, for the Navy, and uh, the General Dynamics cut the price in half. So. And we lost that competition, and after four or five years of spending money and a billion dollars, uh, which was only possible because of all the money we made in Saudi, uh, Northrop uh, uh, was hanging on, and the Air Force came in and said, look at Northrop, you got, uh, you got a classified program, the B-2, which is in trouble. You got a classified missile program. You got other programs that uh, you aren't paying attention to. Forget the F-20 and, and your customers, the U.S. Air Force, and go do go do your job right. And so that's when uh, they pulled the plug and uh, and they focused on the B-2. So and and probably rightly so. But I mean, it was a shame that we it was such a good aircraft uh, really performed well. So. And look at all the money we spent trying to market it, even with a red and white paint scheme. So, Israelis have done quite a bit. Uh, uh, there was an, we had aircraft in Chile, and because of the human rights, the, the, uh, Chile was embargoed by the U.S. government. You couldn't do business with them. Uh, IEI and Israel went down and picked up an aircraft and brought it back and reverse engineered it and put in a whole new radar and a whole new uh, uh, HUD system. And once they develop that capability, uh, they are very competitive and very low cost. Uh, they basically have taken over the worldwide conversions and upgrades. They're doing one right now in Brazil. Brazil has 50 aircraft. And they're putting a beyond range uh, radar missile on the aircraft. And the capability of those F-5s in Brazil is really uh, astounding as to what they can do. They're, uh, really th in fact, one of the stories was after Israelis had upgraded the Chile F-5s, uh, one of the Air U.S. Air Force, one of the U.S. Navy aircraft carriers did a courtesy call to uh, Chile. And so uh, while they were there, uh, I guess the commander of the carrier said, well, why don't we have a little competition between uh, our fleet and, and we'll, we'll give you some pointers as to how to operate, uh, and, and we'll go against your F-5s. Well, the F-5 whacked some of the yeah. top Navy aircraft, and, and and it was because they were familiar with the surroundings. It was all done on, uh, in uh, chilly deserts. They knew how to operate low, or they'd pop up, and they'd only be visible for a short period of time. And uh, this aircraft has got a very low signature. It's about one-sixth the size of an F-18. So, so radar-wise, when you... When you look at it, especially head-on, uh, uh, it's, it's hard to find. So. All right, everybody, that was our look back episode on the F5 Freedom Tiger and also our New Year's episode for 2022. We hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, thank you to everybody for supporting and uh, listening to this uh, podcast. Um, and uh, I just wanted to extend my thank yous again to everybody who's been listening and supporting. So, everybody, that'll do it for 2022. We hope you guys uh, enjoyed it. And uh, we hope you enjoyed the podcast and uh, of 2022, our best year. So, 
Everybody, we thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next year. All right, everybody? Bye-bye, everyone.